Good morning. Good to see you face to face. Usually I'm out there looking up here. My, my name is John Park, if we haven't met, and I'm one of several lay elders here at Genesis. And a few years back, a few of us went through a, a class called the Preaching Cohort. So several of us met once a month for a year. We met with a college professor to uh, train us on how to expository preach. And it was, an, it was an apprenticeship of sorts, and it still goes on. We're in a learning process. We continue to study. We all just got a new book that we're reading through to, to help us on that. So it's a process. And we're be, being discipled in a new way so that we can stand up here and, and serve by teaching the Scriptures. The intent of that training was to give us uh, more people who could preach, gives our pastor or lead pastor a break, it lets him be ministered to on occasion. So my role today is to exalt the name of Jesus as we walk through the scriptures and to help us all just be equipped for the ministry of the church. And by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, that's what we'll do today. If any of you do any cooking, do you typically rely on your recipe book or do your favorite dishes, you just know it by heart, and maybe, you know, I sprinkle a little, a little of this, I sprinkle a little of that. One of the things I make regularly is waffles, as you might have guessed by my table here. And years ago, I found a recipe online I really like because it makes crispy waffles. I like, I like them crispy, and once I find a food I like, I stick with it. And the, uh, I've gone through a few waffle irons through the years, and the waffle iron makes that square grid pattern in the finished waffles. And those square pockets serve as reservoirs for melted butter to soak into. And then you pour the syrup square by square until it overflows through, through all nine or ten of them, whatever it is. This waffle iron has a green light that tells you when, okay, it's done cooking. And I usually leave it on for another minute or two just to give it a little more crispy punch. During the holidays, I like to play short order cook when, when the kids are staying overnight. And this Christmas, I broke out the waffle iron one morning, made a batch of waffles. I keep the recipe in this white binder that sits above in the cabinet above the stove. And it lists all the ingredients, how much to put in, measurements of each of them. So I, I made the batter, poured it into the waffle iron, and then I put the book and the ingredients away while that batter cooked. And the waffles turned out well. Everybody was happy. I used all the batter. Kids ate all the waffles. They said, we need some more. And I said, well, I just made these. I don't need to get the binder out again. I can remember everything I put in. So I made the batter. It looked just the same. Poured it in the waffle iron. Then I opened the lid. The waffle iron still produced four waffles at a time. They each had the square patterns, but they looked a little different. They looked a little pale. And I served them, but customer satisfaction wasn't good. The uh, several waffles were left uneaten, and once I tasted it, I said, yeah, this isn't right. And we wound up, they had lost the flavor. They tasted as pale as they looked. And I did a mental review of the recipe, and I realized I had forgotten the baking powder, the smallest ingredient in there. And the, the second batch of waffles fell short 
of what they could be. Because I missed a key ingredient. They were not what we had our hearts set on. We longed for something better. So we're in this series called The Recipe, and as believers, as part of the church, we're commanded to make disciples. And in this series, we're walking through what goes into following that command. What are the ingredients, if you will, of making disciples? What is the recipe of disciple-making? We've covered this in previous message in this series, but I think it's helpful to remind ourselves, what is a disciple? I'm going to borrow a quote from Pastor Joe Thorne in a book titled, The Life of the Church. He defines it this way. A disciple of Jesus is one who has been redeemed by him, is being transformed into his image, worships him, and lives on mission for him all while being part of the community of Jesus, which is the church. Now, Thorne also stated in that book that the way Adam and Eve lived in the garden prior to them falling into temptation is the way we were all created to live. They lived with God walking with them. And there was peace, shalom, as sin had not entered the picture and brought chaos. We were designed to live in harmony with our Creator. And the story of Christianity is that we're heading back to Shalom. For the follower of Jesus, God, through means of grace, is taking us on a path of sanctification while we're on this earth. And it's a process that changes the affections of our hearts. We're created to live in obedience. And as we become more sanctified, our desire to be more obedient is informed by hearing, speaking, and even singing the Word of God. And that's what we're going to focus on and hear in today's message. The last command that Jesus gave to the church, to his followers, was go and make disciples. Make more people who are redeemed, transformed, who worship Jesus and live for him. And we do this together. We do this with one another. And we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Part of the recipe to make make disciples is the study and application of God's written, written word. It's to practice theology, the study of God's words. To make God known, we must know him well ourselves. Jesus said to those who believe in him in John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So that commandment is not just to continue to read and study scripture. It's a call to obey Jesus himself and to follow his pattern and his way of life. To encourage us in the discipline of the word, we're going to read today from the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. So please take your Bibles, if you brought them, and find Psalm 119. We're going to read verses 9 to 16. And if you need a printed copy, there are baskets spread about. And uh, feel free to grab one of those. I believe it's page 559 in that edition. And then we'll also have the text here on the screen. I'm going to read from Psalm 119. I'm going to read verses 9 to 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you give us understanding of what we read and even sang about this morning. And we ask that we see through this text the greatness of our Lord and the truth revealed about him. We ask that we would grow to know you more closely by what we read today. And may the word of the psalmist, inspired by you to write them, touch our hearts today. May this message encourage us to abide in your word. And that you would open our hearts to see more of your glory as it is revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This longest chapter, Psalm 119, has 176 verses. And it's broken up. It's written in a poetic form. It's called an acrostic where there are 22 different sections of eight verses each, and they, they introduce different verses on the topic of God's Word. So in this long chapter, it features prayers, reflections, even exclamations. We read a couple exclamations as we read through those eight, and they all tout the redemptive value of reading, meditating, and even, even singing God's Word. So it's a remarkable tribute to God and, and to his glory of the word he has revealed. And before I started preparation for this sermon, I knew this was the longest chapter in Scripture. I did not realize that the whole chapter is focused on God's word and God's Scripture. It's over and over again. Almost every verse has a reference to Scripture, all 176 verses. Overall, this psalm reflects the view that we have a God who is, he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he freely and forgives his people without limit. He also guides the faithful in a way of life that is genuinely good and beautiful. And it's written in a tone that conveys a tone of awe. It's of wonder. It's, a, it's really a psalm of worship. And it's worship of the one to one who is worthy. It's a psalm of gratitude for what God has done, and specifically of gratitude for the revelation of God through his word. Matthew Henry may be a name that's familiar to some of you. He's, uh, there's a Bible commentary named after him. He's an English theologian that lived in the 1600s. And he wrote a Bible commentary all the way from Genesis to Acts. You notice I didn't say all the way to Revelation. He, he passed before he could complete the work. Other scholars then completed it under his name, mainly with, put together from Matthew Henry's notes. 
And this commentary is still in publication today, and it's, it's widely used some 300 years after his passing. And here's an interesting note on Matthew Henry in his life as it relates to this particular psalm. His father, whose name was Philip, advised Matthew of this practice growing up. I'm going to share the quote on the screen as I read it to you. This, this is Matthew Henry speaking about his father, Philip. Once pressing the study of scriptures, he advised us to take a verse of this psalm every morning to meditate upon. And so, go over the psalm twice in the year. And that, saith he, will bring you to be in love with all the rest of scriptures. He often said, all grace grows as love to the word grows. So it's evident in Matthew Henry's life that he applied the words of the 119th Psalm. It's no coincidence he became a renowned biblical publisher, and his work carries on three centuries later. And it supports the mission of the Church of Jesus even today. He had hidden the word in his heart. Who authored this psalm? Uh, Some scholars think David, some say Daniel, some say Ezra, but whoever the human author is is not really important for us to know. What's ultimately important is that it's divinely inspired by God himself, as is all of the Bible. And it's a revelation from God that is collected in this writing. And the general scope and design is to magnify the law and make it honorable. We should really take this as a, it's a loving prescription from a God who cares for us, who created us, and ultimately he knows what's best for us. We need our hearts changed, and this is part of God's recipe to change it, is falling in love with his word. I'm going to share what I read in one commentary on this particular psalm. And this was a big commentary. In in one side note, I started looking through it, and I realized all the chapters are in Roman numerals. Uh Uh-oh, what's 119? And I had the Google search. If you want to know, it's CX1X. Maybe you all are better schooled at Roman numerals. The psalmist is writing from his own experience as to the benefit of Scripture and of the good impressions made upon him by it, for which he praises God and earnestly prays from first to last. He's praying for the continuance of God's grace with him to direct and guide him in the way of his duty. And the the psalmist prays not only of the magnificence of God's written word, but the joy and obedience to it. Magnificence of God's word and joy in obedience to what it says. So that's kind of the full menu of the chapter of Psalm 119 as a whole. Let's examine now more closely the eight verses we read. And I pray this will serve as an encouragement for each of us in our walk with Jesus. Let's start with the opening verse. Let's look down at verse 9. I think I have it up here too, but it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So the psalmist starts with a question. He seems to be in a state of self-reflection. And this psalmist is, is probably young at the time, or he could be reflecting 
back on, on his youthful days. It has a similar tone to the writings of Proverbs, doesn't it? Remind you a little bit of that? So what's implied in his question? It's really something each of us need to consider regardless of our age. How can we keep our way pure? What he's pointing out to us, the psalmist, is the world we live in is not morally clean. Temptation awaits us all day, every day, in every aspect of our lives. It's not just outside of us we encounter this temptation. It's inside we're defiled also. We fight conflict within our hearts. We think of impure things. We think of ways to promote ourselves in the eyes of others. We battle sin. We battle corruption. Jeremiah tells us that the human heart is desperately wicked. If we could read the psalmist's intent, it's as it's if he's saying, my gosh, I have no chance. How can I keep my way pure when so much impurity surrounds me and resides within me? He's recognizing he has a sinful nature. He doesn't have the means to stay pure within himself. Neither do I, neither do you, none of us do. But he proclaims the solution. Here's how a person can keep their way pure, by guarding it with your word. The response is worship. He immediately goes into worship here. He's saying, I'm not able to stay pure on my own. I need your help. I need divine intervention. I need your principles. I need something better than me. Let's look down again, if you would, at kind of all eight verses. And look at the number of times we see the word you or your. Your word. That's written four times. Your commandments. Your statutes. That's twice. Your mouth. Your testimonies. Your precepts. Your ways. Friends, our path to purity and a right relationship with God is through Him. His way is the pure way. And what this text reminds us of is we have a revelation in God in His written word. Yeah, for the psalmist, it's primarily the Torah, the first five books of Moses. And you can see it in the way he, he kind of piles up words that are familiar in those first five chapters, or first five books of the Scripture. Commandments, statutes, testimonies, precepts. Those are all words that refer to God's written word. And today we have the benefit of additional writings. We live on the other side of the cross and these references of God's word reply to all of Scripture. It applies to the Bible in its entirety for us. So the young man in, the, in this psalm, he tells us both the, the problem and the solution. We need cleansing, and the, and the solution is found in the word of Scripture. How do we keep our way pure? By knowing the true and living God as best we can possibly know him on this side of eternity. We let his ways govern our ways as he's revealed it to us in Scripture. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. 
The Word of God is living and active just as the one who is spoken of in them is living and active, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he's alive right now, seated at the right hand of the Father on the heavenly throne. Verses 10 and 11 both mention the heart. With, with my whole heart I seek you, verse 10. I've stored up your word in my heart, verse 11. As disciples of the word of, words of Scripture, they're not just part of the greatest selling book of all time. And did you know this? It's the most shoplifted book. That would take some courage, huh? These are not just words recorded in a publication. If they're in our heart, they're inside of us. And they're kept there to be our consultant. They're kept there to be our guide each and every waking moment. In the Old Testament, the heart is a place of both thinking and feeling. So these, God, these words of God are being treasured in a place where they can be thought about and felt. And these words are an instrument of grace from God. He wants what's best for us. The words of Scripture are a means to draw near to Him, to draw near to the throne. We might state the implication of the, these two verses, talking about the heart. We might say it something like this. I want more of you, Jesus. I want more of your rule in my life. I want your holiness. I want your goodness. Because of the grace that you have shown me, I want to obey you more. This world is a hard place, but if I have more of you, Jesus, I can walk through it with security. If I can store up your word in my heart, I'll have more of you. And we can walk together. To store up the word in our hearts means that it's hidden there. In the Old Testament days, they didn't have banks to put all their treasures, so they had to hide them. Somewhere it couldn't be taken from them. When the, when the psalmist says he wants to store it up, it's indicating that the word has great value to him. The scriptures were of great value in Jesus' life, weren't they? He read from the Old Testament. He heard the scriptures taught every Sabbath. He read them himself in the synagogue. He meditated on them, memorized them. He even quoted them often in his ministry, didn't he? And as he read the Old Testament, he saw himself. He read, meditated, memorized, and quoted the knowledge with the knowledge, he would fulfill all these words that were written. He's the fulfillment of all that is written. Ethical instructions are found throughout the Old Testament. The, the books of the law and the wisdom literature, like we just read from, Psalm is wisdom, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. God is teaching his people how to live. And he provides these commands, statutes, testimonies, precepts. Therefore, our guidance and how to adhere and follow him. And there are a lot of these laws in the Old Testament. It's, it would be insurmountable to keep a perfect record of them all, but Jesus did it. 
So when we read these Old Testament instructions, we're learning more about Jesus, how his heart and mind were formed. We we learn about the information he used to guide his ministry, to to guide his decision-making as a human being. We learn about his understanding of right and wrong, justice and injustice. So we learn about the background that shaped his teaching of his ministry while he was here on earth. And that ministry didn't stop after he departed the earth, when he ascended. They continue to show us as followers today the shape of his life. If we think about ourselves as exiles living in this fallen world with temptation all around us, there's heartbreak, evil stories in the news every day. How do we live with hope amid this brokenness? How do we live with hope while we're away from home? There's pressure to live according to the shifting tides of cultural influence. And we got our own pressures to pursue selfish gain and and selfish pleasures. There are enticements in this world that appeal to us every hour. And the psalmist seems to be saying, I'm vulnerable to things that are not good for me. But the response, the antidote is, the psalmist is saying, I don't want to want those things. I want my heart changed. I want you in my heart, Jesus. You've shown us a better way. For you have fulfilled these words. You fulfilled the precepts, statutes, and commands. You are the author of them. I want to follow you. Earlier we pointed out that these commandments and precepts, they all come from God. But let's note too, in these eight verses, there's a response. The psalmist guards his heart in verse 9. He stores the word in verse 11. Some translations use the word treasure instead of store. And if we treasure something, we want a lot of it, don't we? It means it's a value to us if we treasure it. We don't want to lose it. Continuing on the way of response, there's a call to action. Please look at verse 13. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. So we don't just store up these words for ourselves. We're declare to de- declare the words. And the Greek for declare here means not only to speak them, but it implies a celebration. These words are a treasure to share, and we celebrate them as we speak them. When and where do we cl- declare them? To ourselves, to one another, in a public gathering. We declare these words each and every time we gather here on Sunday. At community groups, we declare them there. We, we declare them at Bible study. We declare them in kids' ministry in the back, Genesis Kids. We declare them at Man Up. We declare them at home. Deuteronomy 6 says to speak about these things with your children. We don't just rely on the church to be the only place we speak about them. And I'll say from what I see and hear in my time working in Disciples, we've got, we have some families doing well at this. There, there's some kids that can recall Scripture very well for their age. 
We also speak about them in one-on-one conversations, don't we? We're to use the words of God to encourage one another. And we're to speak these words of God to those outside of the church. With our friends, our co-workers, and people we encounter in all walks of life. Let's look at this passage from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. God teaches us so we can proclaim his word to others. We want his word buried in our hearts. And then we can use it to strengthen each other and give hope to a world that's in decay and they're headed for destruction. But we do this with gentleness and respect. And we do this in a posture of celebration, not condemnation. It's a posture of, let me tell you what Jesus has done. He saw the consequences and the havoc that sin has wreaked on his world. It's affected all of creation, and it's affected people created in his image. So he entered into humanity, lived a sinless life, and he died a punishing death he did not deserve. But the grave couldn't contain him. He rose victorious and defeated death forevermore. And he will return again one day to take his followers to a place where there is no more havoc, heartbreak, or evil, or death. It's already defeated. We're just waiting on the full enactment. That's the stage we're living in right now. The cross in the empty tomb signaled the coming removal of Satan's influence on this world. And the horrible effects of the fall are going to be rolled back. It's going to be on earth as it is in heaven. Proclaiming to others what God is teaching me is further indication that I'm committed to them. If you read something that strikes you and lifts up your heart, share it with someone. It's honoring to God when you speak his word. And we share the words of the Bible with others because it's our responsibility to share God's plan of salvation with those who don't know Jesus yet. We're not to rely on our own strength, wisdom, or even presentation skills in this role. It's, Paul instructs this in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The translation for word there is defined as audible, spoken. It's a beautiful thing when our lips proclaim what God has spoken to humanity in the scriptures. Just prior to that Romans verse we read, so in Romans 10 verse 16, Paul quoted Isaiah 53 and he said, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! With an exclamation point. There's divine power in the word proclaimed. In his goodness, God invites us to be part of sharing that word. Continuing in the responses proclaimed by the author, verse 14, 15, 16, all have them. If you would, go ahead, go ahead and glance down at that text again. He says he will delight in the testimonies. He's going to meditate on the precepts. 
He's going to fix his eyes on your ways. Delight in the statutes. And lastly, he proclaims, I will not forget your word. When the psalmist says he will meditate on God's precepts in verse 15, the word is translated muse, M-U-S-C. And to muse is to think deeply or turn the idea over and over. When I make waffles, I put all the ingredients in the big red bowl, and then I hook up the electric mixer, and the batter churns through the beaters. The batter is turned over and over. So it transformed from a list of seven or eight ingredients into something new. It transformed into something more useful. If I didn't churn the batter, the ingredients would not work well in the waffle iron. It wouldn't take the shape of a waffle when it was cooked. And when the batter is churned and I pour it in, it's able to get into the heart of the grids. It soaks down in. It gets into the crevices where it can take the shape of a waffle. It takes the shape of what it's meant to become. When we muse God's word in our mind, and that's after we read it and think about it or hear it, we let it churn so that it can soak into the heart soak into our heart, then it can begin to take the shape of disciples of Christ. What fills our mind motivates our hearts, and which, which motivates our wills. We, we don't read the Bible for speed. Better to read smaller amounts and give thought to what you read. Turn it over in your mind. Meditate on it. Churn it. More response. Verse 16. He delights in God's statutes. This means there's a constant rejoicing in them. He's choosing to find joy that the God of the universe has spoken to him. He's spoken to us. There are all kinds of things that compete for our joy, aren't there? There's all kinds of things that appeal to me during the day. The things that I think will make me happy. But Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that he pursued all kinds of pleasure offered in this world and achieved many of them and he came to this conclusion any of the things outside of a close relationship with God our maker and creator they're meaningless and when we find ourselves able to say we delight in God's statutes it's a sign of spiritual maturing it's a sign of becoming a disciple the road, to, the road to maturity in Christ is, is continuous. Now, all of us can say, I'm not what God wants me to be. I'm not fully there. If it's your first day in church or you've been here for 70 years, you're not able to say, I've fully arrived. But as we mature in Christ, we look back, we can say, I'm not what I used to be. Through God's grace, I'm seeing some new thought patterns new desires to be obedient, more recognizing my sinful tendencies. So the Bible instructs some of our deficient thinking. It corrects our selfish behavior. Really, it trains us for righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is God's spoken word to us and for us, and it has the power to transform our hearts. Our lives and God's good creation, they're tainted with sin, and we're in spiritual battle every day. Yet God's redeeming grace has come to us in the person and work of Christ. And apart from Christ, our lives are missing something. Scripture tells us what we're missing. It reminds us of who we are missing. It reminds us of who's really on our side in a spiritual war. Satan doesn't want us to be hearers and doers of the word. Because he's the father of lies. In the words of God, disciple us in the way of truth. The words of of God are are life-giving. Jesus in his full humanity felt the need to read the Old Testament. He quoted the scriptures when he was tempted by Satan in the desert, but unlike Adam, Christ never departed from God's word. When the devil misquoted scripture to Jesus, Jesus quoted correctly the scripture back to him. And he remained obedient to the scriptures. In Christ, we can obey God's word. When God's word is in our heart, we have the power to resist temptations and refute the lies that Satan whispers in our ear. And in Christ, we have the power to get back up after we sin, knowing that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Jesus' ministry was built on his teaching from the Old Testament. When we read from the Old Testament, we're reading the same words that Jesus read while he was on this earth. Even though he's the author of them, he read them. And he walked every day knowing full well that the cross waited for him. And he was going to feel the full wrath of God poured out at Calvary. And he also lived among much sin and suffering and saw friends suffer. He knew what sin brought, the devastation it took on people's lives. His reading of Scripture reminded him of his own mission. The breathed-out Word of God reminded Jesus of his role in our salvation. And the cross and the written story reminds us sin and suffering are defeated. The resurrection of our Lord reminds us our future of him in a new heaven, in a new earth. When I didn't read the words of my recipe, my waffles weren't all they were intended to be. They looked like waffles, but they didn't, they didn't fulfill us. I didn't quite have the waffle recipe stored up in my mind, but we missed the full joy that the waffles were meant to bring us. They weren't as satisfying as they were intended. Our call today in this passage from Psalm 119. In fact, this whole chapter is not to neglect the reading of God's Word. It, it reminds us there's greater joy found in God's ways. When we store up the words and listen to His voice, 
when our intent becomes to follow him. The psalmist has pointed us to the one who obeyed this psalm perfectly in every respect. And may it be for us that we grow to treasure the glory of the scriptures, discipline ourselves to store the word of God in our hearts, and get more of Jesus each day as we draw closer to him. He's returning to take us home. A disciple like, is like an apprentice. They follow and learn from their teacher. An apprentice pays attention to what the teacher does and says. And Jesus told us, his followers hear his voice. When we read scriptures, meditate on them and store them in our hearts, we're listening to the teacher. And we're listening to the author. We're meeting with the risen Savior. The Bible's like the food of faith provided by a loving father. And the message today is to encourage us, take time with them, plant them in our hearts. And I'll ask that over the next month, if each of us could read this whole psalm. Over the next 22 days, if you read one section of eight verses a day, you would read through it. The also today in the family worship handout that we do, we've got a, a list of resources for Bible study, different ways to take on the Word. So whether you're brand new to it, there might be a, an idea on here, or you've been doing it a long time, you might read about a, a new tool that will help you. And these are going to be posted on the blog, so you can read through it there. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come back and, and lead us in another song. And as, as we lead through the second song, we will have people in this corner who are willing to pray with you over anything. Any burdens in your life, any joys you want to share. And if today is the first time that your heart is crying out to you, I believe in the risen Christ is the only way to purity before a holy God. Come and talk to these folks during the second song, please. And I'm going to pray, and then Bob Lancaster is going to uh, lead us through response time through the sacrament of communion. So will, will you pray with me? Father, we give thanks for the words you have spoken to us through Scripture. And you've graciously preserved for our benefit that we can know and love you more. May we guard our ways with your word and discover the power of grace that the Scriptures bring through your one and only Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys know me very much. You know I'm a very visual guy. I, I, I think in visual pictures. So I'll never be able to eat a chocolate chip cookie or eat a waffle in the same way that I did before. You know? So it's time for, to the response of the, of the preaching of, of God's word. Today we're going to respond in three different ways. The first is we, we respond in giving. And it's our, the opportunity for those who call uh, Genesis Church their church home. There's gray baskets up here for that. The second is by singing and worshiping by lifting our voices, giving God the things for 
the faith and trusting in the gospel together. The third way is by taking communion or the Lord's Supper. And the night before Jesus gave his life, he gave his disciples the celebration as a way to remember the sacrifice he made for us. If you are a follower of Jesus in the right relationship with God and have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior and have been baptized, and if you are in the right relationship with your fellow believers, you are welcome to take communion. If you are not a follower of Jesus, we want to encourage you to use this moment to think on Christ and even place your faith in Jesus for the first time. At the end of the service, they will be, I'll be over here to the left. Uh, if you have any questions, and then uh, I'll be there to pray with you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We ask that you take a few moments to reflect on your need for Christ. Repent of your sins and remember Jesus as we partake of the Lord's table. During the song, when you're ready, come to the front and take communion. Take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. There is a gluten-free option. Just ask for that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time of remembrance of your son and what he done for us and his sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.